Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Peter chapter number three. We'll begin reading verse number eight here this evening. First Peter three, verse number eight. Continuing with our series on First Peter, the Bible says, Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they may, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Tonight, I want to talk to you about suffering, which has by and large the theme of First Peter. But suffering and dominion, which kind of almost seems counterproductive to each other I guess suffering and dominion let's go to the Lord in prayer Father I come to you tonight oh Lord Jesus you're able to help us in the next little while God I want your word to become alive in my life and to me I pray oh Lord Jesus God these scriptures hold life in them God they speak of you Lord Jesus from beginning to end Lord and I want to highlight and see those areas God in which they do and how it can be applied to my own life I pray, oh Lord Jesus, your word is powerful. It does not be propped up. It does not need any help. God, just the spoken word alone. God has power to alter and change your Lord lives. God, and we're depending upon it tonight, God, to do that. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. Everyone say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Suffering and dominion. <clears throat> Verse number 8 says, finally, this is really the setting of scriptures where I would hope to have gotten last week, but it didn't get there. Finally, he says, he's not saying that as though this is it. He's saying that like something coming to the culmination, the apex, the crescendo, if you will, of everything that he's been talking about. And what he comes to talk to us about is basically this. He's talked to us about all these different relationships where we need to be submitted and subjected and how we need to have a Christian attitude in all these different relationships of being citizens and, and slaves and husbands and or wives with saved or unsaved husbands and or wives. And so he comes to a summation that he's just kind of addressing the general population and he's telling them how they should act as Christians just in a very general scope and uh, particularly how they should act as Christians as anyone would in the context of being in an environment that might be foreign to uh, Christianity or at least the, the, the ideologies of a Christian. 
And so he, he comes to this broad scope, and here it is. He just lays it out for us then in verse number 8 of the basic guidelines that we are to follow. They're very simple as he lays them before us. Number one, we got to be of one mind, or we got to be like-minded, like-minded one toward another. That is a very Christian-like attitude, to be like-minded toward one another. Cooperative, it's like the body of Christ that Ephesians speaks of. Every individual serving its part, but we all work together almost like different pieces in an orchestra for the symphony in order to make that harmony and that music. We all have our place, but we work to each other's good in unity. He says also that we must have compassion, or we must have, as other versions render it, sympathy, uh, which basically means that we got to suffer with one another by entering into sharing their feelings or their emotions of what they're going through. So good Christianity has compassion as a part of it. We spoke on that a couple Sunday mornings ago concerning our mission. You got to love the brethren, or if you will, you got to love like your family. You got to love like your family. And what that means is we love you through the difficult times. And what that means is when difficult times come, I don't just write you off as a, you know, very seldom does someone just write somebody off. Uh, even if you do, you're always going to be related to them. You can call them black sheep, whatever else you want to call them, but you're still related to them. He says, so love the brethren, love them like family. Uh, he says, also he says, be pitiful. Again, that ties back into the compassion. He says, be courteous. He's speaking, some versions relate that as being humble. And so we got to be humble with one another. We can't be odd, haughty. We can't be arrogant, uh, you know, especially Christianity. Christianity sometimes can get a mark on them as though that they were, would be haughty or arrogant, better than you type mentality. We got we to steer clear from that. Uh, the same God that died for us and the salvation we receive, anybody can receive. And just because one has it, we have, doesn't make us any better than them. It just means that one has been obedient and one hasn't yet. All right? And so when we come into verse 9, he kind of breaks down. It's kind of like this is what you should do. And now he's like, well, here's an example just by the way. He says the example is this. We need not to render evil for evil. He's already said this before in some of the previous verses. You don't need to render evil for evil. In other places of Scripture, the Bible says that we should render good for evil. As we're given evil, we should give good back in return. That you should not render, he says, railing for railing. These are really two different, two different aspects. When we talk about evil for evil, we're talking more like actions and deeds. Whenever you talk about railing, that's something that happens with this right here. With your mouth. And so he says we, we got we to gotta watch our deeds and actions and what we say. And so we can't just do evil action for evil action or bad mouth somebody because they bowed mouthed us. He says, just for examples, we got to refrain from evil in our words and in our deeds. Now, uh, we must remember something. Peter, he's telling the Christians here this, and if we're to think, you know, well, Peter, that's fine. You're an apostle. You're expecting something of us that's kind of beyond our ability, beyond what we're able to achieve. Uh, before we think uh, that toward Peter, we must remember that these words of instruction come from a man who didn't always get these principles right himself. He had his struggles early in his Christian journey as well. If you'll remember in the Garden of Gethsemane where the Lord was praying and had his disciples praying, you remember there's a band of men that come under the leadership of Judas to where Jesus was with staves and swords. 
And the Bible says it's in this instance in this garden. Guess what this man Peter that's given us this instruction does? He cuts off the ear of a man. The Bible says in Luke 22 verse 49, And when they which were about him saw what would follow, meaning the disciples here are about the Lord, they're seeing this band of men come. They said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? <laughs> they're coming with swords. Can we use ours? Deed for deed, maybe, you know. And one of them smote, the one that it's speaking of is, is Peter. And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, this is interesting. Jesus answered and said, suffer ye thus far? Look at that. That's interesting whenever we're talking about our, our little First uh, Peter thing concerning suffering. Peter's talking to us of suffering now. The Lord looked at Peter then once and said, you know, have not you laid where I laid when didn't even have place to lay our head? You know, suffered. You, you went this far? In the suffering that, you know, you've got into the same path of me. Sometimes didn't know what you was going to eat, where you was going to sleep, so and so forth. You suffered this far, and now, now at this juncture, you're going to glisten the sword and cut off somebody's ear because it looks like something's coming upon us? <laughs> he says, so, so this is the drop-off point for you, Peter? You suffered that far, but this is enough. Maybe that points that we all have our spot when we're ready to pull our sword. We go, I've had enough. You know a good way to keep from cutting someone's ear off? Don't even carry a sword. <laughs> John 18 and 10, another harmony of the gospel telling of the same occurrence. Then Simon Peter, Peter, having a sword, drew it, smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And here, look what Jesus said. Uh, that John uh, portrays to us. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me. Remember in the garden, it's that struggle that Jesus was having. You know, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup, he's speaking about the cup of suffering. He was going to go through the death, the cat of nine tails, the crown of thorns, all of that. He, and he tells Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath, the cup which my father, which he's speaking of that suffering, have given me, shall I not drink it? And that, was, that was just rhetorical for Peter. Of course he was. He had already told his disciples how he's going to suffer many things of the scribes and the Pharisees and that he would die and he would come again. So yes, he said, I'm going to go through with this. So remember, the same Peter that's given us this instruction is the Peter that went through that. All right. And so he's not asking anything of us that he didn't have to come to terms with and grips with and learn in his own life. Uh, he, he didn't even follow his own instructions that he's given us now. But really, the instructions that he's giving us are not his own, but they're, they're instructions that simply echo the instructions of Jesus Christ and what Jesus had taught him. For instance, in Luke 6 and verse 28, this is Jesus teaching the multitudes, which included his 12 disciples. Jesus says these words in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, bless them that curse you. Well, that sounds real familiar, isn't it? To what Peter is saying. He's saying, bless them that curse you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. He did not say, you despitefully use those who despitefully use you. No. He said, he said pray for them which despitefully use you. Verse 29, unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek... Also other, also offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak forbid not to take thy coat also. And so Peter really is sharing with us something that he had learned and been taught by the Lord. Amen. 
But as we go on into verse 9, so not rendering evil for evil, railing for railing. Uh, it's good that we do not these things. But it says, on the contrary, you should render blessing. What? Blessing. Yes, even as the Lord said, bless them that curse you. Render blessing knowing what? That ye are thereunto called. We have already seen this in First Peter. What have we been called to? You already know you've been called to suffering because you've been called to follow in the footsteps of Christ, as Peter has already said, and his footsteps led to suffering. His footsteps, if you will, were drenched with suffering. He says, so why render evil for evil and railing for railing whenever you know what you've been called to is a life to a certain degree and measure if you're going to be a Christian, Christ-like. It's going to be a life of suffering. Look, that ye should inherit a blessing because... And I don't seem, I'm not, I'm not being redundant. I'm just following the words of Peter here. So if I sound redundant through this lesson, it's because Peter was redundant. He wanted to get it right for us. And that is this. He basically says, you know, because you're going to inherit a blessing. Because after suffering comes what? Glorification. After suffering comes blessing. After suffering comes resurrection. After the death, all of this happens. And he says, there's a blessing that comes. So you're going to suffer in this life. Yes. He said, but there is an inheritance. There's an inherited blessing that is still yet to come. So keep your eyes on the go. Huh? It's kind of like uh, the apostle saying, I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I can do that and I can forget those things that are behind and reach forward to those things that are before. Why? Because I got my eye that's ahead of me. I got, I'm being headed on the left and on the right in this earthly journey, but there is an inheritance. There is a blessing that is ahead of me if I can just make it through this time, temporal time. Everybody say temporal. You need to encourage yourself with that. Temporal time of suffering. Look at it now, if you will, continuing in verse 10 and 11. I might just walk through almost a little bit verse by verse. Amen. Here this evening. Amen. The Bible says, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, that they speak no guile. So we got to refrain from saying some things. We got to refrain from doing some things. If we want to love life and see good, might I even say peaceable days now that does not mean that if you go through life and you refrain from some from saying some things and doing some things that you won't suffer wrong oh that's not what that means what that means is this is that you can by your conduct that we've been looking over and over again by your conduct you can live with a conscience that you're doing what the lord has asked of you to do that goes a long way toward good life. And that goes a long way toward peaceable days. Because when you're at peace with the Lord, there is no greater peace than that peace. You can be at peace with your environment, at peace with your family. But if you're not at peace with the Lord, you've not found peace yet. Amen. And so you can have peaceable days. But that doesn't only just pertain to this life. It also pertains to the life to come we got to refrain from doing some things and saying some things amen evil for evil and and railing for railing because there is a day that is coming a life that is to come that we'll have uh, love that life and see the good peaceable days of a future that is not in a fire of torment and eternal suffering 
hello, that will be in a life, if you will, streets of gold and gates of pearl and the city of 12 foundations and all these other things that are out there for us. Uh, Preparing for that day doesn't start when the trumpet sounds. Preparing for that day happens now, right? Amen. We are in preparation for that day right now. Amen. So, uh, you know, if you give railing for railing, if you give evil action for evil action, what happens with that, really? Let's just be honest for a moment. If somebody says something bad toward you and you say something bad toward them, does that help your situation? It makes you feel good in the moment in your flesh, right? Gave them a piece of my mind. You gave so much pieces away during your day, you don't have a mind left. Makes you feel better in the moment or action for action, right? Makes you feel good in the moment, but it does nothing but inflame the situation more, correct? If we just be honest with ourselves, you know, the guy that gets, you know, hit in the face and gets back up and hits the other one in the face, they both go home with black eyes. You know what I'm saying? Huh? It doesn't, it doesn't really hit. And so he tells us in verse number 14, given further definition on this, he says, let him eschew. That's a good biblical word, eschew. Eschew evil, which means let him shun evil or to avoid evil. It literally means let him lean away from it. Mm -hmm. Let him lean away from it. Because in doing so, he'll be able to do good and seek the peace then of the circumstance and ensue it, or if you will, pursue it. Amen. Verse number 12. Amen. Verse number 12. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. The ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. This is it. Just very simple. The Lord is open to the righteous, but he's against them to practice evil. That's the reason why back with the man that uh, had an unsaved wife, uh, if he did not do properly in his manners of conduct with the Lord and with her, his prayers could be hindered, the Bible said, if you'll remember, because if he was doing wickedness in the eyes of the Lord and how he was even handling that wife relationship that was unsaved, then the Lord was not looking upon him. His face was not toward him in a favorable manner, but it was rather against him. So the Lord is open, though, to the righteous. He is open to those that are trying to live rightly, but his face is against. You are on the bad side of God, if there is such a thing, if you want to say it like that. You're on the bad side of God whenever you're practicing a life that is totally against what he gives us in his word, his commandments, and his desires. So that's just verse number 12 in a nutshell. Now, verse number 13, look at this. And and, and, and just going on, and rather than reading the passage, just go verse by verse, okay? And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Who is he that will harm you? In other words, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, which should be the only sake you want to suffer for, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, you don't have to fear being harmed. Again, That does not mean you will not suffer. But being harmed means that their attacks, whether it's railing or whatever, their attacks will be unfounded against you because you've been a follower of good. And again, this is just reiteration for Peter. Whenever Whenever you keep your nose clean, folks, you don't have to worry about headlines in the paper. You understand what I'm saying? And even if they are, 
you don't have to be sweat on your brow or nervous on pins and needles because you've known you're following a good godly path. Whenever people give accusations against you that are not founded, it may make you upset because they have no you know, foundation to them. But on one area, you should be at peace because you know there's no truth in that. Huh? There is no truth in that. And so there, there is no harm if you be followers of that which is good. Look at verse 14. He says, quite on the contrary, but, or the word could be translated, then and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. How in the world? You, you can be happy, although you may be suffering for righteousness sake. You can maintain the hope that you have, though you may suffer for righteousness sake. Why? Because whenever I'm suffering and I'm still happy or I am still blessed or I'm still walking before the Lord, you know what it does? Everybody's scratching their head. Why are they reacting this way? This is not the way we react in society. When normally a person's railed on, this is not the way that we react. Normally when someone's blackmailing somebody else's name, this is not the way that we react. And so they're scratching their head. Why in the world is this going on the way that it is? Because you're reacting in the way that they don't understand. And the only way that we're capable of doing that is because of being born again of the water and the spirit. And sometimes we don't even get it right when we are born of the water and the spirit. But when we do get it right, it is because we've been born of the water and of the spirit that's helped aided us in that regard. And so they're saying, there's that man, he's happy, he's blessed, and yet he's been suffering. But see, I've not been suffering for wrongdoing. I've been suffering for righteousness sake, for doing what is right. And that is two different spheres of suffering, ladies and gentlemen. Amen. And look now, if you look back at verse number 9, remember, he told them to bless them. Don't rail on them. Don't, don't say evil against them, but bless them because you will eventually inherit a blessing. And so what that tells me is this. The blessing that is to come, the blessing that I'm going to inherit someday, amen, of heaven, that tells me once again, if I'm supposed to keep my eyes on this, then what I'm going through right now, it is really in, 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 in comparison just short-lived and it's nothing to be feared because it's only going to be here for a little while. It's only going to be here for a little while. And so in reality, no harm can come to me because it has a window of time that it can enter my life. But there is a day that it cannot go any further with me. And it might be the end of the life where it cannot go no further, but it cannot harm me. For that matter, it cannot harm my future. Huh? As long as I don't give in to it, it cannot harm my future. It cannot negate that there is a future blessing, a future inheritance that is coming to me if I walk the good path and the good life. Amen. And keep in step with that. There is no harm that can come to me. Amen. So I'm going to suffer for righteousness sake. I'm going to be happy. I'm not going to have to worry about being afraid of the terror. Amen. But they would, the Bible says, fear not the arrow that flyeth by day, nor the terror that would come by night in the Psalms. How could he say that? Because he's walking the blessed life. He's walking the life that's after the Lord. He knew that none of those things, they might penetrate my skin and wound me in my flesh, but they can't harm what God has in store for them that it's keeping with him. Amen. Cannot harm me. Cannot harm that future blessing that is to come. And I don't have to worry about being troubled. Amen. I don't want to be troubled. Could you, if you're going to allow everything that you suffer from in life, just go to the top of the scale, you're going to worry yourself an ulcer? 
You're going to drive yourself mad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, again, there's times it feels like it's forever, and it might be forever in this life. But it cannot go beyond that. Because from my understanding, it's that place of that inheritance that's prepared for me is the place of no more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow. So although it may be penetrating me, in, and I know we don't like to think of that, but although it may, you know, asthma might be in this moment, it won't be in that moment. <laughs> it, it, it can only harm, if you will, or intimidate the number of my years upon this earth, but beyond this life, it can't harm me, and it can't negate the blessing that is awaiting me. It cannot make it less of a blessing. Amen. It's not going to be less of a blessing or less of an inheritance because of what I went through here. Well, someone say glory. So we're not frightened by these things. He says in verse 15, he says, but, he says, but sanctify Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. In other words, so we're not frightened by our sufferings, but we can take those things that come against us and come upon us, and we can turn those things, if you will, inward to further devotion to God. Oh, you want to talk about putting coals of fire on a situation. That which was meant to my bad, God's going to use for my good. I'm going to take this suffering that I'm receiving and I'm just going to cause that to stoke the fire of turning my devotion to God just up another degree. Because mm -hmm. I know where I'm headed. I know what I am doing. I know that my suffering of this present time is just affecting my flesh. It's affecting perhaps my body. Amen. And the Bible tells us in Luke, I think it was Luke chapter number 12, the Lord told him, he said, don't fear those that can destroy the body. He said, but you fear those that can destroy both the soul and the body. He says, don't, don't, don't worry about those that can just destroy the body. He says, you need to consider the one that can take the body and the soul and place them in hell. That's what he spoke of. Amen. And so I'm not frightened by the suffering. Amen. Because this suffering can only do so much. The Bible says to sanctify the Lord in our hearts. Sanctify him, set him apart, make him holy in our heart. Yes. Uh, an all-time fave verse of mine is Proverbs 4, uh, 23 that says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And yet Peter is telling us, Sanctify or set apart or make holy the Lord in your heart. Why? Because it's from that heart that all the other issues of life they flow, they are, they have their origin from the heart. It says, so you get God sanctified, set apart in your heart. But here's a question I have for us tonight. This is God we're talking about. This is the Lord. How do you sanctify somebody? How do you make holy somebody? How do you set apart someone who is already holy? This is God we're talking about. Sanctify him in your heart. We sanctify the Lord in our heart. We set him apart in our hearts by doing this. Recognizing, number one, he is holy, but then for our lives, by honoring our lives in such a way that we identify that he is holy. Mm -hmm. I sanctify him in my heart by allowing my words and my deeds to testify what I recognize he is. He's holy. What does that mean? It means I don't rail when others rail on me. 
huh? that I don't act out in vengeance when others act out in vengeance toward me. Why are you doing that? Because I've made him holy in my heart. And that affects all the different venues of my life. All those things that flow. So whenever I sanctify him there, I identify through word and deed. He is holy because my words and deeds are holy. Someone say amen. Job said it like this, an author. Culture isolation is not to be the route taken by the Christian community. In other words, we're not to isolate ourselves because we're Christians. That was even Jesus' prayer in John 17. He said, Father, he said, they're in the world, but they are not of the world. He said, but don't take them out of the world. In John 17, he said, don't take them out of the world. The reason being is because he wanted them to be a witness in the world. He said, they're in it, but they're separated from it by their manner of life. Keep them in it. Because the only way that they'll have influence over it is if they stay in it. All right? And so it's culture isolation is not to be the route taken by the Christian community. It is to live its life openly in the midst of the unbelieving world. And just as openly to be prepared to explain the reason for it. That brings us really uh, to verse number 16 a little bit, but not quite yet. <clears throat> the Bible says that... In verse number 15, we are to sanctify the Lord in our hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so you're to live this way before the Lord. There's your actions and your deeds harmonizing with God. What that does, that draws attention to you, whether you realize it or not, because it's different than the norm. And as it draws attention to you, people's going to ask, what is it? Why is it that you are the way that you are? If you've never had that happen to you yet, I pray to God it happens. <laughs> because there should be a difference. Why is it? Why are you so happy all the time? I've heard people say that. Why are you so happy all the time? What is, why is it that whenever I'm with you, it just feels different? Mm -hmm. Why do you look different? Why do you respond different? What are they asking? They're asking about the hope. They're asking about what makes you different than anybody else upon this planet. Hmm? What makes you different than anybody else on this planet? And the Bible says we got to be ready. Uh, the, the scriptures almost is that Peter is talking about being set for the defense. But he's, he's not just talking about in the court of law. He's talking about in just real life. We need to be eager and ready to be able to tell people what it is about us that makes the difference from the norm of society or the world in which we live and when we do so here comes into play again we got to do it with meekness and with fear we cannot be haughty about it can't be prideful about answering those questions what makes you different it's got to be done with meekness and with fear not with fear of men but with reverence and fear of the lord Amen. Going on to verse number 16. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Peter, man, I tell you what, he's got just a few nails. He's just hitting, 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 hitting. Again, the main form of suffering in 1 Peter was not so much physical like physical abuse or things of that nature. It was more verbal. 
There's more slander. There's more, you know, lying. There's things of that nature. It was things that had to do with, the, with social or with talk, with the tongue, with the mouth. That was the way in which suffering came about predominantly during Peter's time. But you've you got to consider something right here as we begin to look at this in verse number 16. Think about these people are talking of you as doing evil or evildoer. You've got to think what they're going off of right now. They see Christi, Christians or Christianity as this. These are people that worship a man that was a convicted criminal, according to them in society. They worship a man that was a convicted criminal who died on a tree, yet they're still reporting that he's alive. Let's <laughs> get real for a moment. Now, why do you think that they might consider Christianity, quote, unquote, evil, evildoer? They support a man that did wrong in their mind. And they testify that he's not dead, but we all see him on the tree, right? So not only are they thinking evildoer, they might even be thinking you're a little crazy. Some things haven't changed. <laughs> Amen. Some things haven't changed. The, the, the Bible is telling us over and over again, when you maintain the proper attitude, when you maintain the proper attitude, they're speaking, you have a good conscience, you've been doing right, you're good with God, you, you believe what you're doing is correct and right, you're obedient to that, they're speaking evil of you as an evildoer, but if you maintain the proper attitude, you know what it's going to cause? It's going to cause your accusers, the Bible says, to be ashamed what? That they said anything about your good conversation, which means manner of life or your lifestyle in Christ. It's going to cause them to be ashamed. Why? Because they, they are just who they are. They, they are who they say they are. They're who they say that they are. They're, they're not trying to, they're not wearing a facade. This is not some pipe dream. They're not out there trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. They are who they say they are. And so there'll come a moment in time when they used to say something, they'll think, you know what? I'm ashamed now that I ever said anything because their manner of life has proven that they are who they say they are. Butler said this, living an upright life will make it difficult for persecutors to accuse you of bad conduct. Living an upright life will cause it to be difficult for persecutors to accuse you of bad conduct. And so we got two scenarios then in the end of time. Heaven, the rapture, when Christ comes back, there's two scenarios. The scenario that goes all the way back to 1 Peter 2 and verse number 12 that we constantly and constantly leaned on. That they were calling them evildoers. And he said, but when the day of visitation come, you want them to glorify God. Meaning, hopefully by your life, you've won them over to conversion. So there's two things that's going to happen. People that called you evildoers are either going to be won over by your conduct before Christ returns. And they'll be able to glorify God as well. Or they will keep rejecting you, keep calling you evildoer. And when Christ returns, they're going to be ashamed because they're not going. There's two rows that diverge into the yellow wood. That's all there is. <laughs> Amen. One or the other. Verse 17, for it is better to do, for it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil doing. Simply, it's better if you suffer. It's better if you suffer wrongly for doing good than if you suffer legitimately for doing evil. See, God's, this is the will of God. This is the will of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you 
And in every episode of life and what comes or goes, it's the will of God for us to suffer. No, the thrust is this. It's God's will for you to do right, even if that means suffering. Do you understand? See, that's different. God's will aspect is you do right. And if suffering is a part of that, it's still God's will that you do right. So the will of God is for you to do right, whether you suffer or you don't suffer. Amen. Sometimes our allegiances, our allegiances are tried whenever we are doing right and we suffer if we continue doing right and the suffering's coming. Or if we're going to bail, we're going to jump ship. Amen. So we got to remain faithful is the mindset. We got to remain faithful to God in spite of suffering. Verse number 18. I'm wrong here. My goal is to get through chapter 3. Whether it's lofty or not, we'll find out. For Christ, verse 18, also, here's what Peter does. He goes back and forth. He talks about how we should be. Then he talks about Christ. He talks about the suffering we're going through. Then he talks about what Christ suffered. In verse 18, he comes back. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being quickened by the spirit. So once again, Peter is directing our attention. He said, y'all feeling bad about your suffering? Let's talk about Christ. <laughs> you know, let's even out the scales. So he goes back to the example of Christ. In a very polite way, Peter's telling us we haven't faced anything he hasn't faced. And if you'll notice, if you go back to 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25, Peter concentrated on the suffering of Christ and the death of Christ in verses 21 through 25. He's talking about that a lot. But when we get to these verses, starting with verse number 18, he's not just talking about the suffering of the Lord here. He begins to talk about Christ's resurrection, his victory. So that's thus where my, my title comes in. On one hand, he speaks of Christ in the suffering mode, but then on the other hand, he speaks about Christ through his suffering, the dominion mode. Don't get caught just in suffering mode. Remember, there's dominion mode as well. And so that's what he goes to in verse number 18. He's starting to talk about the resurrection, amen, which is for us our new life in Christ Jesus that someday is going to take us home to a new heaven and a new earth. So yes, there's the crucifix, and yes, there's the suffering, and yes, there is the death. And the Bible tells us in verse 18 that suffering, the just for the unjust, all that, that brought us to God. That brought us to God. But Jesus' resurrection after the death gave us dominion with God. So suffering brought us to God, but his resurrection gives us dominion with God. That's important. Suffering still brings people to God. David said, in my affliction, I cried unto the Lord. <laughs> Amen. Brought him to God. And so Christ's suffering was in order again to bring us to God. And our suffering that we've been looking at is in hopes of the same. That those that are lost, hopefully, by our good witness in our life, may glorify God in the day of visitation. Not because we saved them, but because our life was different in such a way. They want to know what it was. We said it was God. They said, I want some of that God stuff. Hmm? As well. And so it alters and changes their life. That they may be one 
as with the spouse thing, won by the conversation, the Bible said, of, of, the, of the wife back, back earlier in chapter number 3. So Jesus, whenever he died, we understand this, that he didn't die for himself, right? That's a good, general, elementary, biblical truth. Jesus didn't die for himself. We could even call his death a vicarious death because he died on behalf of the unrighteous. He died on the behalf of the unrighteous. And it almost goes to serve the reason, don't it? That if he died for the unrighteous, then we should live righteously. Because he died for our unrighteousness. We should live then righteously, even if we have to suffer for it. Hmm? Even if we have to suffer for it. Because the fact is, in this life, as we live, at least we were only, at least the only thing we have to suffer for is the righteousness. Huh? You suffer for righteousness' sake. In this life, we only have to suffer if we're walking with the Lord, only have to suffer for righteousness. That beats. So suffering for righteousness as a Christian beats having to die for our unrighteousness. True? Before we think it's a peak that can't be scaled, living life with suffering, it beats having to die for our unrighteousness. Look at verse 19. So it brought us to God being put to death in the flesh, speaking of Christ, but quickened by the Spirit. Verse 19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Let me go on to verse 20. Which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Now I'm going to tell you right now, it's 41. I'll tell you right now, those two couple verses of Scripture are probably some of the most difficult two verses of Scripture in the whole book of 1 Peter. And I'll tell you why very shortly. So, again, we end with verse 18. He was put to death. Then contrasting that, he was quickened. He was put to death in the flesh. He was quickened, contrasting by the Spirit. And the Bible says, by which, which that refers back to the Spirit, by which, by the Spirit, also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Which the next verse tells us that these spirits in prison were disobedient during the days of Noah. When the ark was being built and being prepared and God was patient and long-suffering with them as they disobeyed. I'm going to slow down here because I might run over somebody. Okay? So the same spirit that quickened the body of Christ for his resurrection, that same spirit went and preached unto the spirits in prison. I've got three diversions here. Schools of thought, if you will, of interpretation for these verses. Do I have one that I lean toward? Absolutely. But, so there is the mindset that some believe that Jesus 
between his burial and between his resurrection went to where the spirits from of old are held in prison. All right? The Bible does tell us we have, we have biblical, we got biblical standard from Ephesians that he that ascended descended first into, the Bible says, the lower parts of the earth. And he that descended then ascended up into the heavenlies. But there is the mindset that Jesus descended to preach to the spirits, listen, to the spirits of those that perished in the flood, those that did not get on the ark, those that, as the little Bible story would almost convey, knocking on the door, you know, what and in type thing. Those that did not listen to the preaching of righteousness of Abram, that the Lord went and preached to these spirits that perished in the flood between his burial and his resurrection. But then there is... one two three well you know dead in the flesh but quickened by the spirit there is also the same thing though that this spirit the same spirit that raised christ from the dead the same spirit here is the one that i lean more closer to the same spirit that raised christ from the dead was the same spirit that spoke through noah when he did preach and was a preacher of righteousness in the old testament Saying unto them, it's going to rain. God told me to build a boat. Give heed. Your only way of safety and salvation is to be on board. That the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. It's kind of like what Peter has already spoken to back in chapter number one. That the spirit of Christ, because God is a spirit, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of God. That that same spirit that was from the beginning of time and before there was such thing called a time. From eternity to eternity, that same spirit is what moved upon Noah to preach what he did to the souls of men. That same spirit is the spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That same spirit spoke to these individuals back in that time about what they must do. All right? Concerning getting on the boat. And then there is another school of thought that says Jesus preached to these spirits in prison were fallen angels now this one i'm telling you everybody all right fallen angels if you'll remember from genesis chapter number six the bible says that there was a day when the sons of men came down to the daughters the daughters of men the sons of god came down to the daughters of men and that they then out of their union there were giants in the land now that is a whole interpretive thing within itself as well if you want to think that there were actual spirits that came from heaven, uh, demonic, whatever they were, had relationships with literal daughters, women, and that there were giants born. I am not of that persuasion. Whenever the Bible says that there were sons of God, I go all the way back to the lineage of, of Adam and Eve and how Cain took a path that was divergent from the path of the Lord. Amen. Being, if you will, the son of man. But then there is Seth that kept more so to the pattern and the ordinance of God who was the son, if you will, of God. And so that the, 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 the sons of God and the daughters of men was just like unequally yokedness between two divergent pairs one that was more godly one that was ungodly okay that's me but nevertheless whenever they there's some that say that jesus preached to the fallen angels meaning those that had relationships with 
human beings. And there was giants then that were formed. So you know my sway on this then. I believe that whenever it says that he went and preached into the spirits in prison. Peter is saying that because those spirits are in prison, if you will. Those that were unsaved in that time are in a place of awaiting their ultimate judgment. Amen. In the end of time. And that the spirit of the Lord preached in the days of Noah through Noah trying to reach those people. And Peter is just referring to them as spirits in prison right now as he is speaking it. One translation says it like this and probably gives the best exclamation explanation if I could say it. He, speaking of Jesus, went and preached to those who are now spirits in prison when they disobeyed formally when God's patience was waiting in the days of Noah. He went to those that are, they are now spirits in prison, but when he spoke to them through Noah, they were men that had the same chance as Noah and his family had to get on the ark just as every other individual. Amen. Going on to verse number 20, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, right? Because that's all that was saved on the ark, right? Eight souls, right? Noah and his wife, their three sons, right? And three daughter-in-laws, you know, saved by water on the ark. Verse 21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here's something we wouldn't know unless we just read a little bit of history or culture and so on and so forth. Noah was perhaps the most prominently known biblical figure in the Asia Minor region, which is who Peter is addressing from the very beginning in chapter 1. He is perhaps the most prominently known biblical figure of that time for a couple reasons. They had some city there, that, and I don't remember the name of it, but the second word of it was the same word that's used for Hebrew, ark, in the Old Testament. And so whenever they seen that in that city's name, they assumed that it was probably here that the, the ark of Noah rested. And so he was revered like some just great grand person because that happened within their area. And so they're very familiar then with the story of Noah. And he's such prominent in them that there were five emperors over a period of time. They had minted coin and money as we do. And on one side, this is historical. This is the real stuff. On one side, they had a picture of what they believed to be Noah and his wife. On the other side, they would have the face of the emperor. So these were people that were well aware of Noah. So Peter's coming to them on some grounds that they are aware about. You understand that? What do you try to find with people that don't know anything concerning God? Find common ground. Huh? So he's finding common ground. This is something that they're aware of. They're aware of Noah. And he talks, then starts to talk to him that how Noah and his family was saved by water because they got on the ark that Noah was obedient to prepare. All right? It was by what? See, whenever we talk about water and the flood, water was not something that was negotiable. When it comes to a flood, water's not negotiable. It's not an option. Let me say it like that. Water's not an option when you talk about the Old Testament flood. Neither is water an option when you talk about new birth salvation. Water was not an option whenever you talk about the building of the boat and what was going to happen there. Water's not an option when you talk about 
baptism in the New Testament. For that matter, remember, it was Noah that was obedient. You read in, in Hebrews 11 that he heard the voice of God and he followed through in his obedience in building the ark. Not only that, it was up to him. You can read in Genesis 9 and 8, the whole scenario of the flood, that he and his family got on the ark. God didn't place them on the ark. By their own volition, they got on the ark and then God shut the door. It's not God said, I place you here and I shut you up. You have no choice in this. No, they had choice to build the ark and they had choice to get on the ark. But God did shut the door after they got on it. When we talk about New Testament salvation and baptism and all those type of things. It does just like it did in the Old Testament, took the obedience of Noah for the building of the boat and the getting on. It takes our obedience for following through, going through in the watery grave of baptism. We have a choice, but whether or not we can be saved with or without the water is non-negotiable. All right? Is everybody following me? Because when we look at water every time through Scripture, we see it over and over again. Water always denotes separation. Separation always happens at the water. Gideon, he first, you know, talks to his people, all those that are afraid whenever he has this big army and he's going to go out and fight against the Midianites. Gideon tells, if you're fearful and afraid, go home. He loses a large part of his army. You know what God says next? Take them to the water. And at the water, those that lap like a dog or those that bend down and cup their hand, bring it. I'll separate them at the water. That happens over and over again. There's always the water of separation. You have the children of Israel walking through the Red Sea. They're fine. You get Pharaoh's army in their wickedness and they're drowned by the same water. Separation always happens at the water. Amen. And so he's saying they were saved. They were saved as knowing the family and stuff were saved by water, like also baptism. Amen. There is a saving element, if you will, in that. So Noah and his family were separated because of the water from the wickedness of their generation. Those that chose not to get on the boat. Those that chose not to listen to the preaching of righteousness of Noah. They were separated. But when we go down into a watery grave of baptism, there's a separation of us from our wickedness as well. A separation of us from our sin that has huh, plagued our life as well. But, and I said this, I don't know if it's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, they all just get muddled together, amen, on me sometimes. The effectiveness of baptism is not just, it's not tied just to water. You hear me? The effectiveness of baptism is not tied just to water. In reality, according to the word, even as it's spoken here, it's tied to the resurrection. Because notice verse 21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. And I'm skipping the parentheses right now. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The effectiveness of the water, the effectiveness, if you will, of the burial, even of Jesus, is because he got up. It's because he caught up. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? The effectiveness of our baptism in Jesus' name is because he didn't stay in the grave. He resurrected. He got up. Amen. So water's not optional. It must be there. Obedience is required in both episodes. But notice what Peter says. This like figure in the parentheses. He's given a little... He's kind of giving us some more information here. He said, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but an answer of a good conscience toward God. He's making a distinction because in their culture and time, Old Testament forward, there were all kinds of quote unquote baptisms or washings. A lot of ceremonial washings. 
that were just for the purpose of being religious, taking care of unclean hands or unclean feet. There were ritual washings. What Peter was denoting here is that baptism is not just some ceremonial ritual. That's important for us apostolics because we live in a day that society still try to paint baptism as just some sacrament, some ritual that's just to be performed. That's optional even for that matter. Peter's indicating here it is not just the putting away of the filth of the flesh. This is not just some other formalized washing that we are going through. No, 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 no. He says this is the marking of an answer of a good conscience toward God. Oh, my God, I'm about ready to have a fit. What is he saying? He's saying what Peter said that I told you all the other day that we repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What does repentance do? Repentance say, this is the way that I lived my life. I'm doing about face and going to try to live a different way. What is that? That's me trying to have a good conscience. That's me trying to do in a moral way what God would have me to do. It's with that repentance that I am baptized. I don't enter baptism without the repentance. And so whenever he says, hey, this is not some ritual. This is not some formalism. This is an answer of a good conscience toward God. He's referring then to our repentance, our change of mindset, our change of thinking, which will impact our lifestyle, our behavior, our manner of life, everything that he's already been talking about. This isn't just religious. Like what Job said this, Peter, he said, Peter is therefore saying that baptism in itself does not remove moral filth once and for all, that Christians need not, listen, need not be concerned how they live their life. You need to be concerned how you live your life after baptism. Yes. But you know what we're given with that? Repentance. No one has to be, no one has to be Baptized more than once if they've been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody has to be sufficient. Any mistake you make past that point, repentance is your antidote. All right? Amen. Repentance is your antidote. Rather, he says, though, rather he reminds his readers that at baptism they pledged, speaking of that repentance, that, that making a, a good mannerism of life toward the Lord to live in relationship with God, which should result in a good conscience before God, because you don't have more, you don't have any greater a clear conscience than know you're doing what you should be doing, right? A kid doesn't have a, a, a conscience that's nagging them when their mother or father asks them a question about did they do something and they say yes and they know they didn't. You understand what I'm saying? Their conscience is nagging. You have a good conscience when what you say harmonizes with what you did. Right? And so he's saying, he's saying to live that relationship with God, they're going to be in good conscience. He says, therefore, he can exhort them to continue to live even under persecution and suffering in what? In a way that will honor their baptism. In a way that will honor their baptism. Uh-huh. That's how I keep him sanctified in my heart. Continue to live in a way that honors your baptism. Whew. Notice, I, I just go read a few verses. Oh, oh, here we are. I'm sorry. God help us. Amen. Stand with me. 
The last verse. The last verse. Who, speaking, it's referring back to Jesus Christ, that resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who, Jesus Christ, is gone into heaven. Look at him now. This is not the man. This is not the man depicted as on the cross right now. This is not the man that's depicted with cat of nine tails and crowned the thorns and pierced through the side and suffering and agony and three days in the grave. No, no, no. This is not the man being de depicted right now. He is the same man, but he's being depicted differently. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, which there is no literal right hand of God. It's just establishing a place of power and prominence and authority. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. The one who subjected himself to death now has powers and authorities and angels subjected to him. How did he get there? Through suffering. How did he get the dominion? Through suffering. How did he get the throne? Through the grave. How did he get the power? Do you understand what I'm saying to you right now? Amen. So just a little while we'll stay here. Just a little while we'll wait. What are you talking about? For I reckon that the sufferings of our present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Amen. That what we are going through right now is just a little lightweight. Amen. But there's something exceeding that's coming down the road. But I got to make it through my here and now to get to that, my there and then. Suffering now, dominion later. I'm going to read this and I close. It's just verses of scripture. 52 of them. No. 13. Romans 6. I just, I, I, you got to read these. These, these, are, these are the verses of scripture talking about being baptized, right? With Christ. Paul speaking to the church of Rome. Listen to this. Listen to this. Again. Baptism, tremendous, but it, it, it tongue grooves with the resurrection. We can't stop at baptism. We cannot stop at baptism. I'm just going to read them. I'll try not to give commentary or anything like that. I'll try to be good and just read. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not? Come on, Scripture. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. That's suffering, that henceforth we should not serve sin. But that's not the life for us. For he, had, for he that is dead is free from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death have no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye 
also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Do you know what Paul is saying? He's saying God died and he resurrected so you could die and resurrect. He suffered and you're going to suffer. But folks, once you've been through that and you've had the experience, don't live like you're suffering and don't live a life that is not congruent with the life that he wanted you to live. You let all the mortal and filthiness and righteousness of your body go aside. He died for your righteousness so you can live in righteousness even though you may suffer. You're righteous. We're crying out loud. Do you understand that? Though you may suffer, you're righteous. Do you get that? Huh? Though you may suffer your, the righteousness of God. And like they say, that's the big enchilada. Come on. Don't live under your privileges just because you may have to contend with suffering along the journey. Let's pray. I'll release you. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.